Nature Works Podcast. Conversations with extraordinary guests who are working to protect, regenerate, and better understand the natural world. With your host, Mike Weeks. Hey, in this episode of Nature Works Podcast, I'm speaking with the legendary Tim Fajal. Maybe not legendary to you, but here in Bali, Tim is renowned on the island for his work on organic regenerative farming practices, mostly with a focus on changing the heavy chemical dependencies of local Balinese rice farmers. With Tim, in this episode, we talk about organic regenerative farming, Balinese culture, the so-called green revolution, soil health, ocean pollution, meaningful work, connection to the land, and much, much more. Now, if you enjoy this episode and others, please share it with like-minded folks who actually give a crap about the natural world. NatureWorks podcast is free of all sponsors and advertising, and we aim to provide the honest and unbiased insights into how we can help protect, restore, and come on, we need to do this, regenerate the natural world. Michael Pollan's got a new book out. Do you know who Michael Pollan is? How to Change Your Mind. It's the other one. Uh, he's got a new one. Mm. Um, I haven't read it, but I've listened to him in two podcasts. And he it's all about the five, maybe it's the five most important plant plant compounds. So okay. caffeine's one of them. Yeah. And he does psilocybin. Uh-huh. And in there, he traces the entire industrial revolution yeah. back to caffeine. Yeah. And says, we couldn't have done what we've done yeah. without caffeine because yeah. it enabled people to work longer hours, to work at night, to sit around in coffee shops, thinking about yeah, I- that too, yeah. ideas. And everyone before that was drinking beer and gin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So everyone was drunk. And, and, and you yeah. know what's that, how that does for productivity. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> uh, it's, yeah, it's amazing how plants and then And then they tried, tried um, banning it, of course. For in, even in the UK, it was banned in coffee shops. The king, whichever one it was, I'm not much of a historian, uh, he banned coffee because uh, he was... He was concerned that too many people were were gossiping and planning wow. whilst on caffeine, which they would have been, but they wouldn't have gotten it very far with it. It was just oh, very two interesting. minutes. Plant yeah. compounds. Michael Pollan is amazing. He's amazing. He's so influential. Yeah. He influenced uh, me a lot too. Have you seen his Cooked series? Uh, on yeah. Oh, yeah. The air and uh, yeah. yeah, really cool. The way the air one is filmed. In Morocco, I think it is, making the Beautiful. flatbreads. Yeah. Oh, it's just... Yeah, it's it's artistic. Yeah, yeah, amazing stuff. Mm. So, what's happening at Nalankara? Astunkara? Astunkara. I thought it was Nalankara. Astunkara. Where's Nalankara? What is Nalankara? I don't know. I made that up. Question. (laughs) (laughs) Is there a word Nalankara? Uh, No, not that I'm aware of. But I'll have to look it up in the dictionary. It probably is somewhere in the world. Somebody said it to me somewhere. Probably when I was on coffee. Astunkara. Um, Astunkara Way is uh, is moving into new territory, regenerative consulting, which is very uh, somewhat unexpected but really exciting. There's yeah. dem- there's got to be demand for it for you to move into it, obviously, uh, not just like it, it, my little patch. It, it, yeah, yeah, it, it came to us. We didn't we didn't go looking for it. So, um, but it's it's really like just even in the last couple of weeks, it's just we've had like three more leads people who really want to get this sort of stuff done it's super exciting and what and what's the the ask at the moment what are people coming to you for um 
we've got a de degraded area that we want to see regenerated, um, degraded as a result of industrial activity, um, you know, where communities have been become dependent on the degradation trend uh, and the employment that it provides. So how do we turn that around and turn it into a regenerative story? What does that mean? They become dependent upon the degradation. You mean as well, in I mean, industry employs people and then the people perceive that industry and their employer as uh, either a god or the government and they can see no other way but to destroy their ecosystem that will sustain them into the future so and then they find themselves without jobs when the industry moves away so we're being brought in to to look at how how can you turn that around how can we uh, actually the the industry representative is asking us to do something about that to reduce the dependence on them and increase independence on on local ecosystems and um, interdependent communities. So that's pretty cool. That's a big deal. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, can you, without naming names <clears throat> about who that is, but can you tell me what the industry is that's degraded the system? Um, I, I'm, I'm not inclined to do that. I'm sorry, we've, we've signed an NDA, so I just have to be careful about what I, what I share on that. But, um, but is it agriculture that's gone wrong or is it something uh, else? But yeah, I mean, it's what we extract from the earth. Right. Okay. Just to yeah, say yeah. That. It's like yeah. mining or something. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah. And just people with um, 10 ata or uh, 50 hectares, um, an island in, in uh, Sumatra, an entire island that they want to uh, regenerate, you know, and, and look at how they, they can create permaculture system within that place. Um, and some English lunatic who knows nothing about farming has just taken on a bunch there's of that, rice paddies guy too, yeah. directly behind <laughs> here. Yeah, I mean they're yeah. all super cool projects, and and I don't know how they're coming our way, but they are. And uh, yeah, so yeah, I, I can't wait to see what's going to happen next. I think you can see the trends because on YouTube there are videos that are sort of akin to watching paint dry in their <laughs> excitement and their pace. They have, mm -hmm one and a half million views and tens oh, yeah. of thousands of likes. And it says, I restored a patch of yeah. land with regenerative agriculture yeah. practices. So the, the awareness is just exploding, I think. And the, the intention that people feel like they want to get involved, they want to engage. Um, so, and yeah, that's definitely reflected by the number of subscribers to permaculture, um, YouTubers and uh, regenerative farmers, and uh, it's it's mind blowing. What's the difference between permaculture and regenerative agriculture? If there is a difference, mm. uh, I mean, permaculture just implies that you're creating uh, a closed system um, that is somewhat complete, doesn't rely on outer uh, on inputs um, that need to be driven in to be able to sustain this this closed system. So imagine that you have your uh, you know half hectare of land, and that you can have uh, living things on it, you can have water on it, you're recycling the water, you're creating the energy from it, you're, you're obtaining a yield from it, but you're not reliant on bringing a truck in to add fertilizers or cow poo or um, uh, even labor. You know, ideally that should all be uh, managed and sustained within the, the system. Um, so regenerative, it is a regenerative process because by creating an, a living system, by managing and you know curating a living system you are nurturing a regenerative process uh, but regenerative agriculture is really just focused on 
how can we take uh, something that has been degenerated over the last 50 years or so, actually technically over the last 12,000 years since agriculture began mm -hmm. and we started to you know, very gradually take life out of the soil and how can we regenerate? How can we start to bring life back into the soil? But regenerative, yeah, that's if we're talking about regenerative agriculture, yeah. So by its very nature, it needs diversity because you can't have regenerative if you've only got one input, which is yeah. one crop. Yes, yeah. Yeah. So you need animals for manure? Animals, uh, water source, um, biodiversity. Yeah, absolutely. Systems are don't, you know, if you look at nature, you, you rarely, aside from deserts, which are, you know, somewhat devoid of life, you look at a you know, forest is obviously the ultimate example. It's an extremely biodiverse, intricate uh, web of life that's uh, all supporting itself. But incredible soil microbial levels and yes so we've obviously taken on this land at the back of the office putting our money where our mouth is mm -hmm. uh, i've got a 10-year lease on it mm -hmm. you've seen it mm -hmm. you've also seen my lack of knowledge about any of this stuff <laughs> although i am becoming something of an expert in raised beds mm. having watched about a hundred uh instagram 30 second videos on it. That'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I did watch a couple, read a couple of articles on the difference in types of raised beds. Yeah. I still don't really know much. But um, uh, we're obviously here surrounded by monoculture. Mm -hmm. We've got all the pesticides and all the runoff, and we've spoken about this in depth mm -hmm. the, the water that comes down from the mountains by the time it gets here, because we're only a mile from the sea, it's filth. It contains herbicides, it contains pesticides, the urea, the local farmers out of necessity have been trapped into this endless cycle of yes. doing this stuff. And so the purpose of our land is to be able to both provide fresh fruits and vegetables and the likes to, partly to the local community, mm -hmm. but to mostly show the local farmers that there's a better way of doing it. Yeah. Now, um, if... Uh, from from the perspective of what we've got out there, if other people wanted to do something like this, mm -hmm. what what are the factors that you need to consider? Because I've just jumped in, considering that somebody like yourself is going to come along, you're the expert, and mm -hmm. bail us out of a big hole of clay. Mm. I was going to say shit then, but there's no shit in it. If there the were only shit. Yeah. yeah. So what, what, what are the things you need to consider? I mean, can, it, can you regenerate any land anywhere? Well, anytime you put organic material, even on a desert, you can regenerate life in soil. Even on desert, on sandy old crappy, I mean, mm -hmm. desert sand. Desert desertification is a major problem on and, the planet right now. And isn't it's it? reversible. Um, you know, it's yes, it's it's happening and and it's you know, spreading at a, a rate that's unprecedented. Um, but it is it is reversible with with massive and very intended action um, and a lot of that just comes down to separating our waste you know and making the most out of our organic waste and and creating biomass and starting with grasses and that turn into a whole lot of other things you know just so but um your question is what to do with the well so we've got a plot of land there that is basically <clears throat> a toxic rice paddy field mm -hmm. and it's just clay mm -hmm. i've stopped using the term soil because it's mm -hmm. not soil yeah there's no microbes in it it's been drowned for 30 odd years and yeah chemically treated yeah. Uh, you're confident that we can restore that and do something really good with it so as that as an example for other people who might be interested about how you go about restoring 
land. Mm -hmm. What are the general principles or is it different to each piece of land? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's uh, dependent on what your intended outcomes are. So if you're talking to a rice farmer and you can see if you look outside, you know, five meters away from us out the backside of this building, it's just all rice. And uh, the local economy and all these farmers have been programmed into thinking that, you know, rice is the ticket. This is what they're going to do. Um, moreover, there's a challenge that uh, local farmers are also perceiving rice to be um, associated with a goddess uh, who um, is, is guarding those fields and, you know, is uh, protecting and honoring the work of the, the forefathers who cleared the land. I mean, because it, it was a forest before. Um, so it's quite sensitive to, to come in and just mess with that beautiful equation that they've evolved over time. In fact, it was quite sustainable and biodiverse until around 50 years ago when the Green Revolution started. Um, just because you're looking at a monocrop, it doesn't mean that it's not biodiverse. It was really the chemical inputs that um, took away the, the life in the soil and that has got farmers into this downward spiral, um, economically and environmental degradation, gradual and relentless. Um, so, yeah, it's not necessarily just about turning that um, plot of rice into, um, you know, hundreds of different species. Um, but if you even just extract the chemicals from the equation, uh, life in the soil will start to come back and along with it a lot of the endemic life that used to be here. You know, any old farmer you talk to will, will tell you in Bali about how they used to eat eels from the field and um, the ducks were always in, no matter where you went, there was always ducks um, as part of that living cycle. They were practicing permaculture um, in, until the, you know, the, the chemical sales guys came around around 50 years ago and said, no, this is not the right way to do it. That uh, 1,200 years of, of uh, ancestral knowledge that you guys have been nurturing is, is not really uh, what you think it is. Yeah, we can make you guys really rich and you can have nobody who goes hungry anymore if you just start using our chemicals which um, when they started to apply them to the fields, you know, with such explosive growth, um, it seemed like, oh yeah, that might be, uh, might be the case. You know, suddenly yields are increasing and, um, but it, it didn't take long before it turned into an utter disaster. And really the last 50 years of having uh, the chemicals on the fields has just been a, a slow and degraded process of mitigating the disaster. Um, but it's kind of at the end point now. Um, there's not, not too much further that they can go. I mean, the, I, I know the head of the subak that we've been working with for four and a half years, one of the quotes that he, he and Just said, explain what the subak is. Oh, I'm sorry. People um, the subak is like, it's two things. It's the physical gutter and the, the labyrinthine uh, canal system that Balinese established um, around 1200 years ago that uh, is a way to distribute and share the most precious uh, resource that Bali has, which is water. Uh, it's been recognized by UNESCO as a world heritage feature. It's incredible how they managed to uh, share the water from the top of the volcano to, to the sea. Um, so that's uh, the subak, the physical subak is the, the canal system, uh, but the subak also refers to the, um, the administration of that system. So, uh, a subak is a collection of farmers uh, that come together and balance spirituality, community connectedness, and uh, environmental um, 
protection <clears throat> in a nice package called Triyatakarana to farm. Farming is a spiritual practice as much as it's a, um, a you know, a sustenance thing. Uh, it's really, really a beautiful, beautiful equation. And it's sad that chemicals had to come in and, and uh, disrupt the balance. But um, you're saying it's at the end of its cycle. Yeah. Uh, so we've been working with a Subak um, near Green School for the last four and a half years. And the head of the Subak uh, once said in a presentation that he made at Green School a couple of years ago, uh, I'll never forget what he said, in, that if we continue to apply chemicals to the land as we are now, and, and he is himself, he's, he said that we will be planting our rice and sand in another 10 years. Um, so I think, you know, you, we're seeing crop failures and um, ecosystems are failing, you know, and, and it's, there's, there's not that much uh, time left. It's really, there's, farmers are losing their, their options. But when you've been trained, you know, it used to be uh, all of those little kubus in the rice paddies, these little huts, um, they were all for cows. So the cows would sit in the huts and they would create manure, which was used for the fields, and uh, the farmer would rest in the huts. The farmer still rests in the huts, um, but next to them is no longer a cow, it's a pile of chemicals. And a little backpack that they put five kilograms of it on their back and they go and spray it on their, their fields. And over 50 years, that becomes quite an ingrained habit, especially when the government further supports it by subsidizing and um, it becomes very expensive to retrofit your patty that's already been fit by you know the chemical companies to to do what it's doing now so um, the cost of transitioning back to natural farming the labor of it the uncertainty of what the the yield is going to be creates some pretty significant barriers for the farmers um, so they continue to slog on even though uh, most of them can see this this downward spiral um, Every year the yield's getting a little less. Every year the chemical input's getting a little bit more. Um, the loss of biodiversity being quite evident, and um, certainly they're they're reaching an end point. I have I have a friend in in Ubud who is Balinese, works for the World Bank, and he's actually taken on four hectares mm -hmm. and of both his own land and other people's land. Mm -hmm. And he's replanted traditional Balinese rice. There's a strain that's, I assume, thousand years old or or more. Yeah. And he's using soldier fly, black soldier flies, black soldier flies, larvae, yeah. larvae. Yeah, yeah, that's right. As a pesticide mm. and a fertilizer. Wow. And he said he's now got. It took him a couple of years to show the farmers. There's no good telling them. Mm -hmm. Had to show them. Yeah. And now he's shown them. He's now got farmers lining up to get him to start um, applying the same process to to their land. Yeah. So he's not buying the land. He's basically saying, "I'll work with you to uh, regenerate it." But this, the rice is also selling at two to three times the price of regular Balinese mm -hmm. rice because it's such high quality, and restaurants in Jakarta want it. Mm -hmm. So there's obviously a model there. Mm -hmm. um, what what are the so for us here i've got this idea to partition half of our land off for rice half of it off for different types of fruits and vegetables and but one of my maybe crazy ideas is to have a strip of wildflowers down the side mm -hmm. and i 
that idea isn't an original one. It comes from um, what I understand is happening in Holland around the, a lot of the poppy fields and grain and wheat yeah. fields in that they are bringing back biodiversity by making sure there's a two meter strip. Now these are on huge, huge plots of land. But I want to do the same here, put a one meter strip down the side. Beautiful. And I also think it's, if you could get all of the rice farmers to do that, mm -hmm. it would look stunning. Yeah. And they also use flowers every day in all their ceremonies, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, are there, are there, what are the sort of simple techniques that we can do to start restoring the land? Well, as I said, I think just re removing the chemicals from the equation that's is, done. is the first thing. Yeah, that's um, done. That's a given. The next thing is um, is this another one of those habits that farmers pick up that they don't know why they do it anymore. They just do it and um, is burning their, mm. um, their rice straw. So there's massive potential to not only reduce the pollution and the CO2 emissions um, by stopping the burning, but also to take that biomass and just plant it in, in the earth. And um, I mean, we've already been doing that in Subakumalambing for a few years and there's immediate results, you know, um, and <clears throat> it's right there. You know, you don't have to um, carry in all the fertilizer, which ultimately to, to start a system, um, that's, that's part of the drawback. You know, it, it requires some, some effort to uh, find where you're going to get your source of, of biomass and um, compost. Usually it's not that easily to, to create on, in situ. So that's one, that's, that's a couple of things. Remove the chemicals, uh, use the biomass that's there. And then, yeah, introduce biodiversity. I mean, it, it doesn't take much to, to plant a beautiful um, one meter strip of, of flowers all around your your. 46 hectare and uh, 46 hectare. <laughs> Don't do that to me. Sorry. 46 hectare. <gasps> and then you've got your pollinators. <laughs> it already looks too big. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, you've got your pollinators and, um, and a, a visual, something that's visually stunning that draws people attention. And, and, um, and then you can start to introduce other things that are, um, endemic, endemic plants and perennials that, uh, will also, I mean, in terms of the regenerative process, it's not just uh, the physical, but it's the community. It's the remembering, you know, um, starting to plant food that the grandparents used to eat around here. And which are what? Because uh, I'll plant those. Well, I mean, sorghum, for example, goes back quite a long way. I mean, there's a status around rice. So uh, rice became like the, if, if you're, before people were eating sweet potatoes and um, singkong, the, the cassava, sorghum, um, these were their staples for uh, taro, another one, um, for carbohydrates. But this became perceived as poor people's food when, when rice came in. Um, so just to bring those back and uh, to reorient people to perennials that want to live here. You know, you can plant them pretty much anywhere, even on a pile of clay, and you're still going to get a yield from it. And, um, you know, in times when the cost of chemical inputs are skyrocketing as a result of urea shortages and, um, you know, chemical nitrogen shortages around the world, people are going to start to take an interest in finding ways that they can eat closer to home. And planting endemics and perennials are is a good way to, to do that. A, a third of the world's fertilizers allegedly come from Russia, which yeah. right now yeah. is 
and China. Some restrictions on. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. No, a lot of countries in the world, I mean, people are not realizing, you know, what the real issue is behind the, the rise of food costs uh, everywhere. But yeah, there's, there's some serious stuff going on that is, you know, pushing us in the direction of regeneration and regenerative agriculture. That's where all the incentive to do that is, is here right now. How much do you eat from your plot of land, your farm that you've got? <clears throat> You're in the cafe every day or do you actually supply yourself with enough food? You eat your own rice, I assume. Yeah, of course. Yeah. 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 What I, else? I mean, I, I'm embarrassed to answer that question because my wife owns a, a Warunga restaurant and I eat there every day. But we source a lot of the ingredients from farmers that we have partnerships with. Um, just yesterday, I was harvesting rosella that we make the tea at the restaurant with. Um, from your land or someone else's? Yeah. yeah. From my land, rosella, lemongrass, uh, ginger, uh, cassava, um, sorghum, starting to harvest. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I confess that I, I eat at my wife's <laughs> restaurant most of the time. But we are growing uh, at Subaku Mulambing, we are growing all the food. And in fact, we have a trail. And, uh, uh, pilgrimage trail and with each of our destinations on the trail sorry i'm, I'm trying to divert the attention away from away from the fact that you're not growing yeah <laughs> i am growing a lot of my my own food but i'm eating it through in my wife's restaurant i so, haven't been to your restaurant i didn't know you had a restaurant oh really uh, yeah yeah nobody told me until well, now where is it it's in Pereira none which yeah. one uh, i know all the restaurants in Pereira. None. it's right across from i, I mean bean knows it ask your wife it's right across we from... Uh, she's my wife. I don't speak to her about stuff like that. Come on. <laughs> it's across from uh, Pescada. It's, oh, is it? Uh, yeah. Which, which one Sugi is it? Sugi Roll. Sugi Roll. Yeah. It's white. Uh, it's got wooden tables, yeah. all square tables. Yeah. I've been past it so many times and I thought, why would I go and get a Sugi Roll when I don't know what a Sugi Roll is? What's Sugi a Sugi is, Roll? Sugi is my wife's name. Roll. Uh, my, ah. my kids made the, made the name up. I've only ever met your wife once, very really? briefly, sort of, yeah. Um, well, I've seen her at the beach and said hello, but never had a formal introduction. This is the oh, Mrs. Okay. Sugi role. Well, we'll have to rectify that. I, I'll come by. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of the food there, including the rice, and we have the signs on the table, you're eating regeneratively farmed rice. Well, that should be a massive sign outside. It should I, be. I'd have stopped there 10 times a week if I'd known that. Because one of my big concerns about yeah. eating here is one of the reasons the boys love to eat in a mm -hmm. certain sushi restaurant down the road from you. Mm -hmm. And every time I eat there, I think this, you know, this is farmed salmon mm. and it's tuna full of mercury mm -hmm. and the rice is, mm -hmm. the rice is full of pollutants. And I have, yeah. I don't know how many times I've said to Bean, my mm -hmm. wife, somebody needs to do regenerative, uh, a regenerative restaurant or cafe around here. Rice is a big deal. My son's obsessed by rice. I think he's more Balinese than, than he lets on because he, all he wants to eat is rice. But you I know, don't like him eating it because it's so toxic. Yeah. The level of awareness on that front, you know, when I talk to people, which I do probably a little too much with my foaming at the mouth about um, composting and the importance of eating close to home. Um, you know, to put a big sign out and say this is regeneratively farmed rice, um, it might get a a few freaks like yourself to come in, but uh, I, I think, think so. I yeah. think you could, I don't think a regenerative dot, dot, dot product has the same cachet or awareness around it as just putting organic. Mm -hmm. And you, 
I'm assuming you can't say organic because it's no. not certified organic. But does anyone care about certifications in Bali? Um, yeah, that's a good point too. Right. We, do, I mean, we we are thinking about creating our own certification body around regenerative to yeah. to label all the products that we purchase from farmers and and resell or help them find a market for, and to indicate whether this product was farmed by youth, which is also part yeah. of the regeneration process. Yeah. Um, and yeah, whether chemicals were applied or not, whether there was community engagement involved in the farming of the product. I just education. want to be clear, farmed by youth is a positive. It's not you saying that you've got a load of <laughs> nine-year-olds working on your farm. No, 70% of farmers are over 60 years old in Bali and it's the same the world over. Farmers are getting older and the young ones don't, don't want to farm. Um, the previous generation did all the work. Uh, they're seeing their their parents and grandparents suffer, uh, you know, their bodies as a result of it. Se several of them dying of cancer, like my grandfather did, as a result of farming with, with chemicals. And um, yeah, they why would they do that when they could go off and take a paycheck from an air conditioned hotel or restaurant and wear a uniform and get uh, yeah. So Co COVID's changed that though, hasn't it? That's why we have on our T-shirt, Kapan Lagi Kalabu Just remind me what that says. If not now, then when? <clears throat> so, you know, all these people in the tourism industry went back to their ancestral land and had nothing better to do, nothing else to do to sustain themselves, but get their hands in the earth and start farming again. So we're talking to them and they're, they're saying, actually, we kind of like it here with our families and it's a beautiful place. Don't savor the idea of going back to Kuta or Samanyak or wherever to, but they feel like they have no choice. So yeah, our challenge is how do we keep them there, and how do we um, how do we nurture this next generation of like a, a massive army of regenerative farmers? That's that's what we want to do. In your network of farmers and this world that you know, I'm only very recently coming into it, and mm -hmm. it looks like there's a lot of this stuff going on albeit in small pockets, but all over the world. Mm -hmm. And in Africa, some in the Middle East. I met a guy last week in Jakarta who had been working in Saudi Arabia mm -hmm. and had gone out there with his totally all organic, natural, bacterial-based fertilizer mm -hmm. and said, I'm going to grow plants here in the desert. And they, they almost removed him because they thought he was a lunatic because nobody had seen plants grow there mm -hmm. in a bazillion years. Yeah. And within a year or two, he had sheikhs visiting him and one of them bought him a Ferrari. Wow. As a, which seems to be the gift that you give in. That's all I need to do in. to get a Ferrari. <laughs> what are you going to do with a Ferrari in Bali? There's a guy who has a, a Lamborghini and a Ferrari here. It's embarrassing as he's trying to turn it on the tiny little streets oh, no. with the engine revving. Oh, no. That's another, mm -hmm. another, another, another comment. Yeah, it's another conversation. Yeah. Um, but are there areas in the world that you're aware of that are really, really knocking it out of the park? in this regard on the regenerative approach. Is Bali up there or is it is just getting started? I think Bali is just getting started. And um, yeah, we really hope to accelerate that um, that transition. That's, that's our intention. Um, I think the States uh, is providing a pretty good example. Um, people like Zach Bush, you know, waving the flag and getting a pretty good following and supporting a lot of, um, you know, the reversing the trend of the the go big or go home that happened when the green revolution started and you know a million farmers turned into like a thousand farmers um so yeah i I, th I think farming is truly becoming sexy again in the states and eating close to home and you know that sort of thing maybe in canada to some degree as well 
Um, so yeah, that, that seems to be happening there. The, the, you know, that farming would become trendy and hip and cool. Um, <laughs> Did you? Is that why you got into it? Because you wanted to look sexy? Yeah, that's my main decision, <laughs> my factor for making any decisions in my life. Because yeah, I mean. when I've seen you up to your knees in mud, I've thought, wow, like that look. as a sexy guy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, but what, why did you get into it? How did you get into um, this whole? I mean, I think I've always mess. loved. Uh, I've always loved being with plants, and uh, I think just the, and I, I also my my grandparents were all market gardeners in Canada, and you know struggled through difficult times. You know, they came over prior to the depression, got through the depression. And I think that history in my family of, and connection to, to farming has always kind of resonated with me. Um, the salt of the land, salt of the earth type people that my grandparents were. And um, yeah, and I was just brought up with plants, identifying plants and um, loving the garden. So I think that's always been in me, but uh, that really excelled. In fact, I came to Bali as a result of a single sentence that the founder of Green School uttered, uh, which is our kids don't learn about the rice cycle, they live the rice cycle. And that just that, that learning through doing and closeness with nature, integration with nature, awareness that we're one with nature, that just happens when you're in the field, when you're gardening. And I think that's where we all need to be. So I've, I've always felt that in a very gut level. And uh, I think now more than ever is, is that's, that's what we all are being called to do. It doesn't mean that everybody needs to be a farmer. That's always the question that people ask. So that means I have to be a farmer too. It's like, well, you could plant a little bit of tomatoes on your windowsill and, and that would already be something. And that's the thing is like that, that action, you know, people are like, uh, I think we've been so removed from nature and in our urban centers and so conditioned to think that everything that we need to eat is going to have to come from a supermarket. Um, but it's, it's beautiful that when, when we, we come back to it and we realize that it can be as simple as growing pots of vegetables on our windowsill, if that's all that we have, when we do that, it makes us feel good, you know, coming back and, and reconnecting with nature and being in awe of it. it, it it's satisfying. Um, so, it's always just felt that way to me and and i love sharing that with other people so i've been in education for a long time and so that's been my thing did you start in green school on all of this stuff um you, how long have you been there or had been I, there? I was at green school for nine years and i left two years and ago. you were you were teaching agriculture or rice practice or were you a regular teacher well I, I really wanted to see the rice cycle happen at Green School after I heard that sentence uttered by the founder and, and uh, it wasn't really happening. And um, after years, I just decided that I would take my team um, and take them out to the rice paddies and find an old farmer that could uh, do that with us. And then that evolved into a course that your wife took actually, mm. the rice cycle course. And, um, and that evolved into so many things that I could never have imagined. That was a really calling from the deep to come here and engage in the rice cycle. I'm embarrassed to say mm. that when she signed up for that course, which mm. was in the first month that we arrived in Bali, mm. what I, I said to her, what, what are you doing? A, a, like, you've got better things to be doing with your time, surely, than a rice course. Mm -hmm. No, 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 you know, we're in Bali. It's part of the life cycle here. And it's <laughs> part of, I mean, it's a core foundational aspect of life here. Mm -hmm. And and she's and it's organic and you know, we eat organic and it's or it's regenerative and I want to get my feet in the soil and I want the kids to see it. And and at the time, 
So what's that about 17 or 18, 17 months ago it would be. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I just poo-pooed the whole thing. <laughs> Said, you're out of your mind. No, I am not coming to a rice <laughs> course. And uh, and I'm ashamed to say that now because I am a rice farmer. Yeah. I mean, I it's great. haven't actually done any farming yet. I remembered. But you got the label. That's the I, I got thing. the label. So I've got, I can put it on my business card. <laughs> I can get one of the hats. And you say it's sexy, so therefore I'll expect <laughs> to get be. more attention from uh, uh, you know all corners of the rice paddy field. Um, but uh, I'm somebody who who really I I uh, I'm not an environmentalist, but I do care enormously about the environment, and that's why I'm doing this podcast. Mostly, I'm doing this podcast because I want to learn as well. But the uh, the one thing that has struck me coming here from where we lived before, which is in Boulder, Colorado. Mm -hmm is the lack of access here to actually being able to just walk in nature. Mm -hmm. I used to be able to walk out my back door mm -hmm. and my yard, well, it, in the wintertime, I would find cougar tracks in the snow this big. And we've had cougars up our trees. Mm -hmm. There were great horned owls nesting in our pines. This is my backyard. There were deer coming in at all, all stages of their of growth, uh, we would have um, snakes in the backyard, lizards, rabbits. They started reducing as the hawk chicks started to fledge. But it, that really did feel like we were in a cycle. Mm -hmm. I come here and um, you're lucky. Uh, we see monitor lizards in the subak. I don't know how they survive because the subaks are so filthy. Mm -hmm. We're working on that. We're going to clean all that up. Um, but other than that, seeing a few butterflies and oh, and some cobras. We get cobras in our backyard. And there used to be rats in the house we lived in. But uh, cobras we, the cobras have taken care of those. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. But it doesn't, Bali, Bali's doesn't, certainly down here in the lowlands, doesn't feel like it's a wild place. Doesn't seem to have much diversity. Is is it different up in the mountains? Is there, Are there areas here that, that are different to that? Um, if I wanted a nature fix, a true nature fix, where would I go to yeah. get that? Well, we have a trail that um, we take people on and to give them the nature fix and that reconnection. And yeah, truth be told, it feels like nature. You know, you look at the rice paddies. Who, who looks at the rice paddies and those gorgeous views? Flooded anaerobic systems where <laughs> death is happening under the, the surface full of, of the chemicals water. yeah no butterflies but people don't see that of course you know there's blue sky there's the reflection of the patties yeah, that's the ultimate greenwash yeah well it kind of is um but it's still nature doing its thing to some degree with and, the help uh, of monsanto yeah mm. But around then, there's riparian zones that are stunning, you know. Which zones? Riparian zones next to the river. What's our riparian zones? It's the, the area next to the river that the Balinese have been very respectful of protecting. Oh. So that's why a lot of the villas in Bali have such great views, because the spirits live close to the river, and we're given access to the area behind their villages where there's a sloping view of a rice paddy and then the beautiful forest next to the river. So those forests are still really biodiverse. They're not planted so much, these riparian zones. Um, and they're gorgeous. You know, you look at river ravines. Um, but yeah, you know, there are some incredible views in the north um, where we want people and, and it's breathtaking. But when you look 
more closely at what they're looking at, yeah, it's mostly clove trees, for example, which have coffee grown underneath. And it's like just uh, not even a whisper of what that was as a forest uh, a couple hundred years ago. It's all been cleared and replanted for, for agriculture. Um, but there are, there are like uh, Sangye Monkey Forest is a primary forest. It still exists and up in the mountains near Batukaru, there's some really beautiful areas and forests that are many generations old. There aren't many species of animals here though, are there? The tigers oh, are gone. Tigers are gone. Uh, Rhinos have gone. Yeah. Dinosaurs have gone. There's still a lot of birds and um, there's the, the wild boars in West Bali still. Exist. Oh, they have them here. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's not, it's not too uh, biodiverse on the fauna spectrum. No one's going on safari any day soon. Mm -hmm. What's been your experience over the time that you've been here with the litter? With the garbage in the waterways yeah because um, it's a ma it breaks my heart every day it breaks everybody's heart it's hard to be here for more than a day without having this conversation and uh and in fact i was just sharing can i share a little testimonial that, yeah um, one of our pilgrims um what do you mean by pilgrims because you sound like a religious nut no <laughs> and uh, um let me just find it first. I'm sorry. I should. Uh... I mean, we take people across um, across Bali on a, on a pilgrimage trail with the intention to reconnect people with nature and the source of their food. So, um, yeah, I'm I'm not going to fiddle with my phone and try and find the testimonial, but it's really um, it's really hard hitting. Um, no, do it, do it. Really? Yeah, if it takes you a minute. Okay, yeah. it's going to take me a minute. I can um, sing a song. Can you get on with that and I'll, I'll look for this? Um, that would put people off ever listening again. Look at I found it already. That was easy. Okay, so this uh, man named Philippe is French and he walked from coast to coast in Bali for 10 days. And uh, he's a farmer as well, a bamboo farmer from France. And he walked with his wife and son uh, across Bali with us. And he said, my values, my philosophy, my daily life in France is Astunkarawe. That's the name of our project. Coming to Bali, I hoped, meet local farmers, share their daily life, learn more about bamboo. Astunkarawe was way beyond my expectations. I'm proud to have participated in your pilgrimage. The trio, and these are, this is our trail team, Echi, Novi, Oka, embody the joy of living, respect, and exemplary uh, professionalism. Congratulations. The energies, the colors, the landscapes, the people of Bali are extraordinary. But that gigantic pollution comes to ruin everything. It's too much for me. It's unbearable. I can't wait to go home. I'm sorry. Whoa. Yeah. And I mean, I, I'm going to try and share this with the Minister of Tourism. On That's uh, really... That just kicked me in the stomach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, I didn't. I didn't see that coming. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, this is we were. I was out there on the trail a couple of days ago with a, a gr another group of nine um, people, and and we were having the same conversation at the table and just trying to make sense of uh, how this is possible in a place where the Balinese are so. Um, this is so integral to their their fundamental philosophy of life is balance with nature. Yeah. 
So how can it be possible that these, uh, the plastic pollution is what it is? And the burning. Yeah. So I, this is the bit I don't get. You talk about this goddess, mm -hmm. what's her name? Who is Dewey. in charge? Dewey, mm -hmm. the goddess of- Dewey Sri. Okay, so she's, she's um, gifted rice, mm -hmm. but she's gifted it along with now the necessity to use chemicals that everyone knows are bad for the environment. Mm -hmm. the, the farmers here know, I've mm -hmm. spoken to them. Mm -hmm. In fact, they've even said to me directly, I've got a really good relationship with a couple of the farmers here. And they've even said, don't want to go organic, it's too mm -hmm. much work. Mm -hmm. They've actually said we're lazy. Mm -hmm. From their own mouths, we're lazy. Mm -hmm. Carry on spraying. Um, I've had multiple conversations with farmers at the back here, next to the Subac, because I'm actually this afternoon meeting the head of the Subac to get clearance to put garbage traps in. Mm. And I've said to them, I will clear the garbage myself. Not, well, I mean, I will. Mm -hmm. And our team will put the traps in. We want to put the vetiver reeds and mm -hmm. clean the water, take the pollutants out, measure mm -hmm. everything, make sure it's quantified and, and the likes. And one of the responses the, um, which came through Sarah, you know, my assistant who translated, I had to ask her to ask him again because he said, what garbage? And we were standing in front of a pile of garbage that literally looked like somebody had dumped a truck into what could be one of the most stunning water systems. And I said, all of this garbage, back, this, oh, no, no, that washes away. It washes away into your ocean mm -hmm. and it covers your beaches and it gets caught in all the trees and everything else. And you talk about the Subak system. It's a UNESCO World Heritage. Um, it's assigned to that mm -hmm. status. Mm -hmm. It's like it is the biggest garbage dump I've seen or the most, I should say, the most distributed mm -hmm. garbage dump mm -hmm. I've seen. I don't get... You, you know the Balinese people way better than I do. And they, I, from what I understand, they have an immense amount of respect for you, those that are mm. the, those rice farmers that know you. Have you spoken to them directly about their relationship with all of this stuff, the chemicals, the plastic, the burning? Because they all know it's bad. They guiltily look at me. When I'm walking along the street every morning, I, I, I pick all the garbage up that gets thrown. There was a massive uh, ceremony last night which means that first thing I have to do is bring down a bag mm -hmm. in their own streets, mm -hmm. in, this pristine, in this beautiful area, I'm picking up dozens of plastic water tubs and straws and dog ends, dog ends in our office out the front here, mm -hmm. and just crap everywhere, masks, and you know, I, I filled a bag this morning. But if you asked any of these people, they would say, like you're saying, that they care and love and I mean they're so connected to their place mm -hmm. like more than anyone I've ever seen their their desire to protect the place mm -hmm. but it doesn't come from a protection from themselves mm -hmm. what's the relationship have you got insights into how it's happening I've had so many conversations about this and the, I think the great challenge is uh to remove judgment from the equation when we have these conversations and our are what we share with local people is is more often than not just really steeped in judgment and i you know i was reminded by and and that's not productive it's mm. just it's not constructive and um and it gets heated 
pretty fast. And, and you, you know, if you're here on the island for a long time, you're not going to do yourself any favors by, uh, by pushing things too hard. So, yeah, I, I, I find myself frequently bumping up against that boundary of, um, yeah, stifling some frustration for sure. Um, but I, I was reminded by one of the pilgrims when I went to visit them the other day uh, on the trail. Uh, we're both from Canada and we were remembering, actually, we grew up in the same province and we were remembering um, this. Uh, I can clearly see it heading into the Banff National Park. And when I was a little kid in the early 70s, I clearly remember seeing people chuck their McDonald's bags out the window and to the ditches. And you would see litter in the ditches of the national park. And, um, and we were reflecting on that and realizing that, you know, we did know that there was something bad about that. If we saw somebody do it, you'd, you'd go, that guy's a bad guy, you know. Um, but that was part of the transition. And I think what really catalyzed the, the full transition to no more litter that seeing or very, very little in Canada, we just don't really see that much litter in ditches or waterways. Um, it was the signs that went up that said, you know, a hundred dollar fine for littering. And um, I, I really think um, it's a combination of, you know, rather than put it on the shoulders of the Balinese, which is a massive educational effort that's been well underway already um, by, you know, a few people that we know who have uh, spearheaded that movement. Um, that's a very slow process, but I think to, to escalate and to um, accelerate the process, a punitive measure that the government gets involved in, and starts to, you know, just say, this is not correct behavior. You're going to have to pay like $10 um, and, and that's going to hurt if you're caught littering um, and responsibility for the corporations that create this waste that can't be recycled because you're not going to see any tins or plastic bottles or anything that can be monetized in the waterways. It's all the stuff that it's useless. So if it's not monetized, then it's going to end up on the reefs and in the rivers and in the waterways. So, you know, the likes of, um, yeah, I mean, all, all the companies that are producing this waste are going to have to start to take responsibility about the packaging. And they are in Western countries where they are, well, certain countries now you can't get plastic bags. You yeah. have to pay for yeah. a, And that's the case in Indonesia, isn't it? You're not meant to get plastic bags. Yeah. All the small stall holders will always yeah. give them to you in plastic straws. There's a whole bunch of restaurants now that I've gone into where I refuse straws and then they say they're cassava straws or mm -hmm. their coconut straws and and they're terrible but mm -hmm. you know they go soggy within three sips but great mm -hmm. they're going to break down their compost i had the same conversation only a few weeks ago about my youth growing up in mm -hmm. i grew up in a very poor part of bristol where nobody mm -hmm. gave a flying shit about mm -hmm. their environment our streets were full mm -hmm. of garbage my grandfather used to throw his cigarette my grandfather you know lovely guy but he'd throw a cigarette packet straight out the window mm -hmm. And then do the window back up because he didn't want to lose the smoke <laughs> with us breathing it all in in, in his car. <laughs> but garbage was everywhere. And then in the 80s, they brought in these campaigns. And I don't remember them except for seeing some arrogant, cocky person throwing a piece of garbage over their shoulder and then some big shame piece mm -hmm. about it. Mm -hmm. And um, of course, the problem we have now, well, back then there were three channels. So you saw it because you watched the ads because everyone watched the ads mm -hmm. back then, unless you were making a cup of tea. Now everything's so distributed, nobody's watching TV. 
Mm-hmm. So it's a big challenge to try and try and educate people. And I know it's happening in the school systems and, and the likes. But for me, I've come up with an idea that our company is behind. Mm-hmm. And that is to put together a prize. And I've already checked in with some Balinese friends to make sure this isn't in any way patronizing. But we're going to offer a $100,000 prize to the to the Banjar and Subak in the region that shows within a certain period of time, I think it'll be about nine months, the biggest improvement and innovation for uh, litter removal and collection and out of the Subaks. And we're going to send around secret spies to those areas to go and look and monitor. So if, I don't know, there are hundreds, if not a thousand or more Banjars in Bali, but for everyone that enters, we'll actually go there first. We'll go and look at the problem and we'll assess it. And um, and we may split those prizes up. So the so biggest innovation prize, so it's not just one. But I want to get that to a million dollar prize and maybe even a bit like the X prize, which I think is $10 million, which is an innovation prize. And so motivate people to be able to support their local banjars by getting involved and making it competitive and um, and seeing if that has an impact. Mm-hmm. Because I have been scratching my head since I got here. Mm-hmm. Scratching my head, wiping my tears. Yeah. Um, and I think if in our time you know, over the next five or 10 years, we can actually f- fix just one thing, if it's not just, if it's not the agriculture, then at least the garbage, then that's worthwhile. Yeah. I think that's a great idea. It's a multi-pronged approach that's required. And, you know, the, the CNN hero of the year, um, the winner was Pakmade Janur, who, who won because of his innovation around, um, you know, the plastic exchange. No, I don't know anything yeah. about this. And he just won $100,000 from CNN. Oh, really? Yeah. So and what was, the, what was the competition? Uh, oh, it's the CNN Hero of the World. Oh, Hero of the World. Yeah. So people, applicants from all over the world, and, and for the second time, a Balinese person won it. Um, so his plastic exchange is based on the premise of people uh, collecting waste from their villages and exchanging it for rice. Yeah, I heard about that program. Doesn't always work though, does it? There's some drawbacks to it. I mean, I see a bit of a sustainability crisis with that because it also requires funding. Um, yeah. So it's, it, it, I mean, it's a beautiful initiative and I don't want to say anything bad about it. Um, and. Uh, I think it's already had some really amazing results, um, but I'm just not sure. You know, maybe if people establish the habit of doing that, um, then it will be sustained. But at some point, funding won't be there to continue to pay for the rice to provide it for an exchange. So, um, yeah, the habit. It's all, I mean, all of this, regenerative farming, everything. It's, it's you know, the habit of putting five kilograms of chemicals on your back and and thinking that anything but that is inconvenient and and too much heavy work, you know. The same goes with plastic. Yeah, just chuck it in the river; it's mm. easy. So, um, yeah, I think it's a process. The gates are opening up again. People are coming back mm-hmm. into Bali. Mm-hmm. I've never been here You've outside of COVID. Oh. I, that's not true. I came here 26 years ago on my way back from Australia, stopped in Kuta for a few days and said, what a complete dump. I'm never coming back again. Because I, I thought Bali was this mystical, magical place. And I get off the plane and the first okay. thing I see is like McDonald's. Same, same. Yeah. Um, and here we are. I've never been in love with such with a place as much as I am. With same, same. The people <clears throat> and it's, mo- it's mostly the people. I mean, it's mm-hmm. the place mm-hmm. as well. And it's the 
It's the environment, the temperature, and mm-hmm. the likes, but it's mostly the people. Mm-hmm. I'm completely enamored by the Balinese culture. Mm-hmm. I'm bal- enamored by by most of Indonesian culture. I mm-hmm. spend a lot of time in Jakarta, and I have a lot of friends there now. But the Balinese are very special mm-hmm. type of people. Okay. I can't. I, it's like I found my people, even though I don't understand them. <laughs> I appreciate them, but yeah. I don't understand them. Yeah, and I don't speak Balinese. And so there's all of those little challenges, but just my small interactions, like these are my kind of people. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, we're opening up again. Tourism's going to probably come flooding back. Mm-hmm. With your insights and knowing uh, many people in the various communities, obviously the money needs to come back in because people have been struggling on their backsides. But um, what are you predicting from the the next sort of six months or a year. Do you think people will flood back into the tourist areas from the mountains where they've been working on their farms? Do you think the litter is going to increase? Do you, like, are you dreading it? Are you? Yeah, I mean, I've been going back and forth to Seminyak. We have a client in Seminyak that I've been visiting for the last two months. And um, it's just been clear sailing for up until last week. And it was just like suddenly one day, the traffic, everything was clogged. And it's just like before. And um, so I'm not savoring this, um, but I know a lot of Balinese are, and God bless them. I, I completely understand why, you know, their their eyes are lighting up again with the possibility of, you know, repainting those guest houses that are now filled with mold mm-hmm. and having people start to stream in again, for sure. It's their sustenance. Um, you know, 80% of the, this island's economy, I think, is based on tourism. So uh, for sure. But there was a lot of talk about before the tourists come back that Bali needs to do it differently. Mm-hmm. These cheap holidays yeah. where lots of Australians come in, and I'm just picking on Australians, but they're one of the largest uh, yeah. numbers of people that come in and just get drunk on the beach in Kuta yeah. and have cheap package holidays. It's a yeah. throwaway culture. Yeah. They never really leave Kuta, so they don't even under, don't see or get to appreciate Bali for what it really is. Yeah. Uh, from an environmental perspective, though, do you think anything's been anything's going to be different or is it going to get back to business as usual has there been any measures put in place well i know that um that the governor has said that we want to do away with this cheap tourism i'm not sure what measures will be put in place to make that happen i mean my sense is that even if it were twice the price Australians have an allegiance with um, with Bali and Kuta. It's the know, far northern territories of yes. Australia, <laughs> and I mean, they've they've brought a lot of benefit to those families. As much as they've also paved over all of Kuta that used to be rice paddies, um, it is what it is now, and uh, that's that's a uh, it's an engine for a lot of people's livelihoods now. So I I I suspect that's going to come back, despite the intentions of of the Balinese government to to put a halt on that type of tourism. But I think the world over people are likely because tour, you know, flying is going to be more expensive and um, shaming on, on getting, hopping on flights to go here and there. And then carbon shaming and that sort of thing is probably going to become more and more a thing. I think people will travel with purpose more and come for longer holidays. And um, we'll want, I think there will be an increasing demand to uh, if you're going to go somewhere, you better make a positive change by doing that. So, I mean, that's what we're betting on. Uh, and I think for, for the time being, uh, maybe a fringe of, of the population, the general population that travels to Bali. But um, Astunkara, it will be a growing um, one. A growing yeah, so population. people are going to come in. They're going to 
to for Aston Cara. They're going to go on your walks. Tell me about the walks. Give me your your biggest sales pitch right now. Why would I? Why would I go on it? Um, well, I mean, I guess if we're to sell it to people, it would be like because you need it. You need to be reconnected with nature and the source of your food. And when you do that, uh, it feels really good. And not just that, but it's a communal experience. You do it like with eight other people and you sleep on a platform in nature uh, together. Uh, mosquito shirt, nets? Uh, mosquito nets, good. yes. Um, but just that process of reconnecting with nature, reconnecting with local communities where um, people have a simple and beautiful and connected way of life, both with the, the surrounding community and with nature. Um, it's deeply inspiring. Um, but I mean, underlying what, what happens? What I, happens? Yeah, I, I mean, I know you go and walk through the paddy fields. Yeah, that well, doesn't sound overly inspiring. Why, mm. what, what am I going to get from it? Well, and, I, that's why we call it a pilgrimage. It's not a tour. It's not a trek. It's a journey, um, and a journey that connects you from coast to coast with people who are taking regenerative action, or where we see locations where regenerative action is is a high potential for regenerative action. So, and by being witness to that, um, you are inspired to take regenerative action yourself back when you go home, wherever you came from. And also by your walking the trail, regenerative action can look like, for example, you know, we visit a destination where the people who are feeding us um, have a farm. They may have farmed with chemicals before, but now they're they're being supported through this regenerative tourism to not do that anymore because they have an offset um, to, uh, you know, a financial offset from the, the reduction in the yield potentially because they have another layer of revenue coming in through people coming by. So moreover, they had a warung there, for example, a little restaurant where they would sell things that local people are eating these days. It's now just like rice became the status food. Now the status food is like Indomie, packaged. Oh, noodles. those pot noodle things, my kids. MSG, sausages, spices, and plastic covered, and made from wheat from America. They're awful. They're unbelievably awful. But this has become Indonesia's national food. So when we come in as foreigners and we say, hey, we're not interested in this. We actually want to know how your grandparents ate. And then they rediscover that. The regeneration is happening at the village level. It's happening in the hearts of the people who are walking and experiencing the perennial plants and the traditional ways of life and eating. And it's like, yeah, it's 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 two pronged, right? Um, both regeneration from the local community and regeneration in the hearts and minds of the people who are walking the trail, so that the regenerative tourist is actually walking this. It's almost like a neural network that just gets reinforced with every pilgrim that walks it. And the, you know, people can see in the local community that there's something good happening here that maybe I want to replicate. And we can empower the people in the local community, not that they're not already empowered themselves, but when they can create something great like that, that inspires international people to come there and take notice, their neighbors want to do the same thing. So we see it as like a bunch of nodes on a neural network that'll just continue to expand and the the paths will also expand to different trails that we hope will not just go around Bali, but to neighboring islands and maybe even to neighboring countries and maybe even around the world. That's the hope. You're going to come and visit our plot. Yes. We're going to say this is how, your plot this is how not to do it. 
<laughs> See that English bloke who's Don't sweating over there. <laughs> but this actually, your your land is right on on our trail, right? So we likely will drop by. And Don't I go walking across my land. I'm like an English <laughs> land landowner. Yeah, yeah. Get us. off my land. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good. All right. Well, we've got a lot of work on. Yes, we do. All of us. And uh, I want to talk to you after this as well about the specifics about getting my cow manure in to hot manure my uh, rice that's sat there on the Good land. Plan. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you for your time. I'm yes. going to get you back at some point to discuss updates as we move along on the land but all right yeah and where can where can people find you what's the website www.astungkaraway.com spell it because I, I can't even spell it s like sam t-u-n-g-k-a-r-a-w-a-y astungkaraway.com and and it's a one-week walk through the rice paddies there's a 10-day sea to sea or a five-day tree to sea Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, when I go bankrupt and have lots of time on my hands because I've it's going to be put great. all my money into rice paddy fields, I'll be I'll, I'll come on the ten day walk. Perfect. Thanks, okay. Dave. Thank you. Mike. Cheers.